0: Today on Never Was a Gamer. Hey, meet my dog Maggie, a living thing I've established a secure bond with. Get attached, why not? (laughs) Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is a veteran runner who's definitely never retired a human being, Dimitri.
1: So before we get going today, I just want to run a quick test, Michelle. If you could just <laughs> describe in single words only the good things that come into your mind about your mother. Mom. Okay, that's Motherhood. That's, these those aren't, those aren't those aren't those aren't even adjectives. Maternal. You failed. Clear rep. (laughs) Retire. Retire. (laughs) So today we're talking about Blade Runner, the 1997 PC adventure game. This is the second game in our arc of licensed games. The first one we did, hopefully you listened to it, was GoldenEye. I thought that was a really fun episode. Uh, For this one, we're doing something a bit more unconventional. You know, GoldenEye is often upheld as one of the greatest licensed games of all time. If you say, you know, what are the great licensed games? Somebody will probably say GoldenEye. People might not say Blade Runner, even though it was quite <laughs> popular for, for the time. But I, I wanted to do this, one, because I have really fond memories of playing this game when I was young, and it was definitely, a, you know, an adventure game and, a, you know, a licensed game that really stood out to me as, as something unique. And because I think, you know, it does something interesting or it, it lets us think through the whole idea of a licensed game. Uh, in in some interesting ways, because unlike you know Goldeneye, which I think is much more easy to envision as a video game, a uh, Blade Runner, when you think about what the essence of Blade Runner is, it it might be a little bit more difficult to do uh, you know as a video game. I mean, there were attempts in 1985. There was a Commodore 64 game. That one though, they couldn't get the movie license, so it was inspired <laughs> by the Blade Runner soundtrack. <laughs> Wow. The game inspired by Vangelis.
0: <laughs> what? Can you tell me about what kind of game that would even be? Like and, is is that like the first um the first like video game album?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the game was clearly based on the movie. The point of the game was that the gameplay would consist of tracking down, chasing and killing replicants. Okay. And so it was more of, you know, an action game. It had these side scrolling action elements. But, you know, at the core, that's not what Blade Runner is about. And you can't just, you know, paste the most obvious action verbs from the movie onto a game, you know, in the 80s and 90s, especially. And I mean, even today, that's usually, the, you know, the strategy of most licensed games, you know, trying to think of, you know, how can we con- how can we take whatever this license is and imagine it in the confines of an action platformer?
0: Yeah. Or like, how is this a shooter? In what in what way is this a shooter? Yeah, there, was there ever
1: that? any shooting or anything that could be interpreted as shooting in this game yes. or in this movie or book or whatever or yeah. soundtrack? And we can make a game <laughs>
0: aiming of it. at a thing with another thing.
1: But with this, this 1997 Blade Runner envisioned as a point and click, I think they did some really interesting things, and at least in my opinion, they kind of nailed the license. And and you know we can we can talk about that. I'm really excited to get your take on that. But before we get into talking about Blade Runner, the game, our history with Blade Runner, the films. We have some listener mail. Ooh. And so this comes to us from a listener, um, initials BS. So <laughs> we're not off to a great start.
0: Not going to read anything into that.
1: <laughs> and this is, this is in reference to our Mario sports episode. Hmm. And so BS says, "Well, I thoroughly enjoyed your Mario sports episode, I can't believe you would just ignore the greatest of all Mario sports games. Mario Baseball. You no. haven't truly lived until you've tried to blow L- Waluigi's fastball past power-hitting Petey Piranha, seen Boo's crazy curveball as a pitcher, watched Yoshi track down every fly ball as the center fielder, and, re- and reveled in the glory of a Diddy Kong stealing second base every time he gets on.
0: Okay. I mean, I...
1: Here's what stands out to me. Have you ever seen... A longer list of F tier characters
0: <laughs> listed <laughs> in a row. Conspicuous I mean, absence of Mont Mole on that <laughs> list.
1: <laughs> Monty Mole not there. I don't know if he's in the game. It's so. It's if if the selling points, if the if you know if the parts that stand out of this game involve Petey Piranha, boo. Yoshi and Diddy Kong. I don't know if
0: that's a great sell. Sidekicks the game. Um, (laughs) So what I smell in this letter is someone with a love of baseball that is clouding their judgment in general. Um, However, this has made me think about one thing that might have actually made me like um, the the Mario baseball games, which is that baseball is about as close as sports get to being a turn-based strategy game like so much of it is about the plan of the pitch and like where the hit goes and then like a small bit of reaction and action before you regroup and decide on the next thing. I wonder if there's something in there that I would actually enjoy.
1: Maybe you do love hitting things with other things as we've I established. I love to hit
0: a thing with a thing. Yeah.
1: Baseball though, just like all those characters, d-tier sport.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree. And all I those agree.
1: d-tier characters, I just it's it's the worst sport. And Here's here's the thing, I don't. I feel like people who love baseball just have given into that American propaganda machine. (laughs) Because here's the thing, think about like what are the things that people associate with American patriotism? Two of the worst things: baseball and apple pie. The worst kind of pie. Yeah, apple pie sucks.
0: Yeah, you know what?
1: You know I love pie.
0: Yeah, you do. Uh, Apple pie to a fault. Apple pie though,
1: F tier pie. Apple crumble delicious oh
0: my god so i feel i like- will say let me say this in defense of baseball without taking us too off track it is the only mainstream popular sport that you can very easily drink a beer while playing um and i think that's something in its favor you don't want to do that with soccer you'll be sick baseball you can comfortably have chug a beer on the bench go up for your at bat do an okay job
1: maybe i'll give maybe i'll give mario baseball a chance one day Not in the near future, Uh, but but BS also goes on to say that this person secretly thinks that Golf Story is the true heir to Mario Golf, and I think that's a great take. Um, I kind of wish that we brought off brought up Golf Story last time. I think that's a game that you would really like. So check out Golf Story.
0: You know what? I might. That sounds like a good holiday game.
1: Great recommendation. Thanks, BS. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, BS. You're baseball. You're better than your
0: name. (laughs) stands for baseball stan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, let's get back to Blade Runner.
0: <laughs> so, it might make sense to to talk first about our histories with the movie. Um, I have I have sort of a two-phase history with my relationship with this with this film, <laughs> okay. which is the first time I saw it, I was pretty young and quite stupid, and I think if Google had existed at the time after turning it off, I probably would have googled Blade Runner explained <laughs> uh, I definitely saw it at some point in high school when I was like not mentally prepared for the fact that you actually kind of have to pay attention and like maybe turn subtitles on to like truly well follow what's going on in this movie um and so I had definitely a phase where I sort of like didn't get the hype and then I rewatched it at some point in my early 20s and was like oh um and now I, of of course, you know, like really, really like it. It's it's sort of the template for for so much fun cyberpunk and sci fi detective stuff that happens later that I that I really really like. So yeah, I've I have I have sort of a, a two phase um, feeling about about the film. And then we went to see the more recent Blade Runner together, and both of us loved that film.
1: Yeah, I've I've loved blade runner since the first time i saw it when i was relatively young as well it would have been you know on a vhs probably around around 1997 because i would have been familiar with the movie before i picked up the game and i picked up the game you know pretty shortly after after it came out so again i don't want to you know i don't want to say that you know i totally got blade runner the first time i saw it you know when i was you know 12 <laughs> but you know there was just something about the atmosphere that I just found so compelling and, and about that world that I just wanted to to live in and, and exist in. And so when I saw there was a game and a game that looked like the movie, mm-hmm. you know, which especially, you know, in you know 1997, that's kind of unheard of to see something that looks this good. And that has, you know, at least from, you know, the back of the box has the same seems to be communicating the same tone and the same vibe. I had I had to pick up the game.
0: And you were playing lots of point-and-clicks at this point anyway, right? Like, this was a genre that you were sort of, like, actively engaged with?
1: Yeah, so maybe it's good to talk about that history, too, because, because yeah, I was definitely on top of, you know, what point-and-clicks were coming out. 1997, they're still quite popular, but they're about to hit, you know, I think they're at their peak, and, and they're going to go on a swift and steady decline over the next few years. You know, after 2000, you're hard-pressed to find any major point-and-click adventure games released anymore. But this was, you know, the heyday of adventure games, I think, was still, you know, was still happening there. But um, I've been an adventure game fan without really even knowing it since I was very, very little. I I remember picking up a game that just looked so compelling to me on the shelf when I was, you know, a child called Mixed Up Fairy Tales. Which was a Sierra game that I think was a Roberta Williams Sierra game. So the same, you know, the woman who created King's Quest. Oh, okay. Went and made these games for, for children. And, you know, it's a a point and click where you have to, you know, they're fairy tale characters and they've all, you know, lost something that's central to their story. I remember, like, Jack from Jack and the Beanstalk has lost his axe and you have to find it for him and bring it back. But just, again, you know, point and click adventures to me have always just looked so good and just looked like cartoons, living cartoons. And that's definitely what drew me to this one. And then, you know, not really understanding this was a genre at the time, a few years later, I remember some cousins coming over and one... I think had just gotten, for Christmas, Curse of Monkey Island. Right. And brought it to our house and, you know, put it on my computer so you could play it a bit. And that game, to me, just looked so beautiful. And it was, you know, it and it was fully voice acted. It looked like a living cartoon, really funny. And also, you know, I was just drawn to the puzzles. Mm-hmm. So I immediately was like, okay, I need to play this game. I need to then play all the other Monkey Island games. And that leads me into a lot of the LucasArts adventure games. And then that eventually led me to some Sierra adventure games. And so, you know, I kind of went back in time and just played as many adventure games as I could. I I love it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I can confirm that the art and environments and stuff in those Monkey Island games hold up because I played them as adults and as an adult and enjoyed them. Um i I didn't really play uh point and clicks when I was a kid I think I think my parents might have bought me one or two that I were probably like maybe a little too advanced or adult for me when I was like really young and and I didn't get into them but when I started getting back into games as an adult um particularly before I sort of got my navigating 3d space hands together before my my Bioshock uh, transformation <laughs> um. These were games that you had suggested I check out as, like, you know, pretty, pretty like, casual, easy to get into ones. Um, and yeah, there really is like a, a warmth and a care to the the art in these and the construction of of puzzles and stuff like that. And yeah, the the humor and and the intelligence behind them that um, is really engaging and great.
1: Yeah, and you know we've we've talked about this before. How I was not growing up a big like Western RPG or PC RPG fan. So basically adventure games were where I went on the PC if I wanted something that was story-driven. Right, um, You know, on, on consoles, I'd have some JRPGs. But as we, as we mentioned before, it kind of took me a little, a little longer than maybe it should have to get really into JRPGs. But this is, I went to adventure games for story. And then, you know, LucasArts Adventure Games was where you'd go for comedy. That was, you know, those are some of the few games that attempted comedy and that do comedy well. Yes. And so yes. so you know always going there for that and I and I'm one of the people who actually kind of really likes those types of convoluted puzzles. You know the <laughs> puzzles that are can you get into the mind of the developer type puzzles which I know you know some people absolutely hate. I always find the I always found them um, kind of interesting, but of course, you know the the puzzles have to match the tone of the game and the tone of the story and you know those super contrived comic style puzzles make sense in something like Monkey Island, mm-hmm. they would not make sense in something like Blade
0: Runner. Yeah, right. Although it is it is a good format, I think, for the kind of sort of detective story that we're that we're mm-hmm. looking at here.
1: Yeah. So Blade Runner is kind of an unconventional point-and-click adventure. You know, we call it a point-and-click adventure, but if your frame of reference for what those are are, you know, the Monkey Island series or the King's Quest series, where you're, you know, gathering a lot of items into your inventory and then combining them in often nonsensical ways to solve puzzles that's really not what we have here this is you know this is a game that i think tries to reimagine what the adventure game is and can be and how it could lend itself to a detective fiction
0: yeah with a with i think a much more open ended and sort of non directional flow to it as well i mean i think in in those early adventure games they very much were about figure out what you need to do here in order to be able to progress on to the next thing. And we have a couple of clear sort of convergence points in this game where um, you do sort of have to do that that piecing together. But overall, this is sort of a... I keep wanting to use the word adult or mature, and I don't mean that in a way that is like pejorative towards, you know, the, the uh, Monkey Island style games. As I said, I had a fun time with those when I was in my 20s. Um, but it is much more... This is this is much more invested in the feel of being a detective where things are not going to be immediately obvious and where there's sort of room to fail in a, in a certain kind of way. I in in getting ready for this episode, I would like to read you this quote that comes from blade Com, the wiki. I found this <laughs> so funny from the introductory paragraph the game is unique to the point-and-click genre in that it begins in a highly complicated fashion and continues that way until the game's conclusion.
1: <laughs> <laughs> who is that quote
0: from? It's just in the wiki. It's a neutral, non-attributed <laughs> quote in the wiki oh, <laughs> for this okay. game. And I was I mean, like, I mean, they're not wrong. <laughs>
1: I mean, the in interviews, the um, co-founder of Westwood Studios, who produced this game, who Prior to this, was known known primarily for Command and Conquer. Right? so not in this genre. Louis Castle, who's the, the co-founder of Westwood, said that you know when they when they got the Blade Runner license that they had to compete for. Um, they decided they really wanted to make an open world adventure game. So yeah, taking the parts of you know an adventure game that would lend themselves to to the Blade Runner universe, but um, like you said, not have it in such a linear fashion. Open up the world a little bit. Allow the allow the player to to explore. And, and, you know, I think it's partially that approach that allowed them to actually get this license in the first place. They were part of a bidding war for the license. And there's there's even, you know, a deal about to be made with another publisher when Westwood stepped in and, and pitched the game. Uh, and according to, you know, Castle, one of the things that got them the license was that they really showed an understanding of the movie and, you know, the tone of the movie and, and you know, thinking through how you can translate that into game mechanics. Of course, the other thing that I think really impressed um, impressed people was the fact that they could create the and recreate the atmosphere of the game so they actually you know came up with a tech demo which is basically the the opening of the game uh which is also kind of the opening of the movie and showing that you know we can actually we can do this in a game now and i think that uh that also got people on board
0: this strikes me as a perfect marriage of of those things Uh, it's just like I guess, the right kind of people at the right time with the right franchise to do something like this with a licensed game. Because I think one of the one of the strengths of Blade Runner is um, the clarity and singularness that it has in its aesthetic presentation, in the space that it builds, in the world that it builds. Like, it has... Such clear and iconic and recognizable internal rules, characters, um, themes within it, even sort of an approach to storytelling. I think um, that is you really can can pick up and build something that isn't just a reproduction of the film in a way that still feels very intimately like you are walking around in the space of the film. Um, and that's never mind how good a job they did on all of the art, all of the backgrounds, all of the characters. Like this is a this is a visually very impressive game.
1: Yeah, and I think that was, you know, that's something that was really important to them to both, you know, capture the essence of the film, but not recreate the film and not, you know, you're not playing as Deckard here, right? The Harrison Ford is no. Well, actually, there's. We, we can talk about that. He, he Harrison Ford doesn't make an appearance, but Deckard makes an appearance.
0: You can see the back of his head in one photo. Um,
1: but but you know this is this is a game that takes place in the same world. It's 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 like a parallel story. It's happening concurrently with the events of the film. But and you see a lot of you know locations from the film, just enough fan service. But then also you're going and exploring completely different parts of the city. They hired Sid Mead, who was the famous concept artist who was the concept artist for Blade Runner, he was working on the concept art for the game. Uh, they brought in set designers from the movie to learn about their process of how they built the set so that they could cool. actually, you know, create create new locations that tried to work seamlessly as possible with the existing locations that, you know, that people would be familiar with. And then on the mechanical side, you know, they, they had from the beginning that this has to be a detective game, which you know sounds okay that's that's obvious but you know when you really try to break down what does that mean to have a detective game that is something that is more open that is not linear that makes you feel like you're investigating there wasn't actually a ton of precedent for that at the time at least nothing that that i had played that actually you know made you feel like a detective um you know and actually gave the player that agency and then the other kind of complicating factor was that they always wanted to deal with the underlying thematic of you know, synthetic versus human, human versus replicant, and to create the uncertainty in the player that, you know, the the viewers of the film would, would feel when they're watching the film and to always be questioning whether, you know, whether you as a, you know, your player character is a human or a replicant as well as other characters in the game. And so one thing they did to try to address that is that every time you boot up the game, the game randomizes which of the many NPCs our human and our replicant, and we—I think we had actually very different experiences, just based on you know how how the role happened at the beginning.
0: That's so cool to me, um, you know, especially for something of of this period that there's that much flexibility within within this. And I think like this is something that is so fun in the era where there's a walkthrough for everything. Um, not that I used a walkthrough for this, but like I went back actually after I had finished and looked at some of the walkthroughs, because I started thinking about like, how would you even structure beginning to account for all these different variables that that can happen? And that's before you even get into, I know there's there's some player choice elements in this game as well. Um, and it's extremely interesting and extremely well constructed, I think, the way that they manage to have sort of a singular through line and singular story where there are so many branching off points where things can go differently. Um I I just think that structurally this game is is really very impressive. Um if you do like the Blade Runner universe, it's such a joy to walk around in this. And um it's also a joy not to be redoing the exact same thing we saw in the films. Like it this so many good editorial decisions were made in this game.
1: Yeah, and there's there's AI in this game that is at least, you know, seems incredibly unique and even now seems pretty advanced and you know i don't know you know under the hood it was probably you know compared to some things that are happening now relatively simple but there's kind of an opacity to what's going on where i think games now maybe try to be too transparent about you know what will affect what and what you know how that how the dominoes will fall where this game does not and so you know you have npcs who are kind of On a schedule, you know, kind of on their own personalized schedule within the game. And, you know, based on when you give information to one NPC, if they encounter another NPC during, you know, their schedule in this simulation that's running in the background, they might pass off information to, you know, characters that they're aligned with. Or, you know, if they learn, for example, that you are coming after replicants and you're not sympathetic towards them. Um, they and other replicants like them might start lying to you. But the game is is never transparent that this is actually happening. Yep. And it's really only, you know, upon playing through it a number of times that you actually learn how things start affecting each other. And, you know, when I, when I played this initially when I was younger, I must have played, I probably played it about five times and, you know, I played it again now and I still really couldn't tell you how everything lines up. There's still so much that seems, you know, a little bit hidden, which... I, I really like, there's still a sense of mystery to this game, even after after I've played it so many times.
0: Absolutely. And I think that aligns so well with some of what I wanted to say about the approach to storytelling that I associate with um, the Blade Runner, I guess, franchise, we can say now, um, which is also a tendency, sort of a restraint, a tendency not to over-explain things, sort of a lack of hand-holdiness, um, a willingness to let the audience sit with some mystery or some opacity and have to do a little bit of interpretive work of, of their own to to really um, be on top of everything that's going on. So I, I think that translates so, so well here.
1: So actually, before we get too into the weeds, do you want to just set up, you know, the basic premise of this game, who we are? Because, you know, once we start talking about how this game works, it, it's so easy to kind of veer off into, uh, you know, into abstract territory because of how this game works.
0: Sure, 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 sure. Um, So in this game, you play as Ray McCoy, who is a somewhat junior Blade Runner. You know, he's not a seasoned one like Deckard. Um, And he gets put on assignment um, by a Lieutenant Guza um, to go investigate this massacre where a bunch of animals have have been murdered that belong to this guy who collects them. And so you start out Thinking that you're just going to be going and investigating that and quickly it becomes clear that there's a much larger plot here going on involving replicants again trying to find ways to sort of extend their lifetime or or fix uh, sickness or shortcomings in their in their builds uh, existing sort of underground in the city And, and the plot is you. Sort of hunting them down and encountering these particular characters, figuring out whether they are human or replicant and, and sort of dealing with them. And so to do that, you are talking to people. You're also using a lot of sort of detective tools. You're finding things in the environment. You're working with uh, sort of rolodex of information that you have that's that's digital, um, you know. You're you're using some very Blade Runner technologies in in interacting with photos and video and and making your way way through this plot.
1: So we'll delve into the particulars of at least our two competing experiences when we talk about you know the the moment to moment of of the game. But I'm just curious off the top your general impressions about this game. Anything we haven't hit yet? You know, does did this game capture for you what was important about Blade Runner? I remember, you know, when we were setting up the license game arc for you, the most important thing you said for any license game was just its ability to capture the vibe of of the original movie, or you know, whatever the the original medium was. So. Did this work for you?
0: I I really think this game succeeded at capturing the vibes even more than I had thought that it that it would. You know, it's reinforced in so many decisions in terms of as we've said how the back end works, a lot of the aesthetic choices, but you know, one of the things that really concretized it for me in a weird way was some of the UI and tech implementation that you use in the game. Um one of the most notable sort of ways that you interact with that stuff is through as I had mentioned the sort of digital rolodex that you have that's capturing you know all of the evidence that you're that you're noticing it's tracking information that you're getting on leads and on people and on crimes it's sort of identifying places where you still have questions and um it just it has this this real physicality and and solidness to it uh there's almost like a tactile uh nature to it that that just, links in with this world so well for me
1: yeah this so this you know this uh the rolodex it's called the kaya in Mm -hmm. the the game this thing apart from the fact that you're right that i think it feels like it is of the world this for me was like a ui revelation even now i think I, i forgot about this and you know how well this both ensures that all the clues that you find are you know kept in one place but still gives you the feeling that you're solving the case on your own, that you're pursuing the leads on your own. This is, I think, you know, sometimes you get games that are ostensibly detective games, but the way the UI organizes clues, it's it, it kind of organizes them for you. It does the detective work for you. This UI does everything, it, it's like the perfect balance of collecting everything. Um, you know, you can filter by you can filter evidence by the different kind of cases or, you know, the different leads that you're following. And so you still have to kind of put together and make the connections or at the very least, you feel like you have that agency to do it, that you're doing the detective work. But everything is still, you know, you're never having to pull out the, uh, you know, the pay you're never having to pull out a pencil and paper yeah. you know, to jot down the clues.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like as as a capture tool that just like seizes on what you've what you've already found. Um, I think it's, I think it's pretty exceptional. Um, and as you said, with, with leaving a lot of that space, this game does not think for you. It will leave you to think Mm -hmm. for yourself. What it will help you make sure you do is not forget or lose things that you have worked hard to surface in this world. Um, Right.
1: Though, I mean, this is a point and click, so it's often easy to miss things just because Oh
0: boy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Um,
1: and you know i think one place where that actually plays out a lot is within another piece of really cool you know technology in the game which where you can use the esper yes so you know this is this is from the movie it's uh you know his little uh you get a photograph into your little digital machine that lets you do uh, magical enhancements on the photograph. Yeah, this,
0: you will remember this as Harrison Ford saying, "Enhance, enhance," and the computer procuring completely non-captured in image angles on things and like incredible resolution that was not in the original photo. It's great. This is yeah, like you get a, a kind of uh, like magical technology that I actually completely am on board with, like in the in this universe.
1: Yeah and and you know so as you go through and you're collecting clues you'll often gather photographs or you'll you'll take a still from security camera footage for example and then run it through the esper and then you're basically playing a hidden object mini game. Yeah. As you kind very of very
0: hidden object <laughs> sometimes.
1: <laughs> and sometimes you need to kind of select a very precise area to get the camera to zoom in where you need it to zoom in.
0: Yeah and this is you know, there, there are some spots where this game is finicky, I'll say. Um, One of the things that I think is both a, a, a strength and a, a challenge in the Esper is that you have no idea how many identifiable points mm-hmm. are in any particular... There's no communication when you're... There's nothing that comes on... Like, McCoy doesn't come on the VO and say, like, I found everything there is to find here. Like, that kind of stuff will not happen in this game. And so... um, it's both, no, because
1: you're McCoy.
0: Yeah, right. Like, do you think you're done with this with this photo? Because that's when you're done. Um, and so I am positive that I missed things in these. And I am positive of that because uh, there were at least a couple of times when I went back to an old photo because I had only found one thing in it and later realized that some of the photos have like six things and, you know, was able to identify a couple more pieces of evidence at that point. Um but I mean, th-
1: I find it though, yeah, definitely finicky, but also so effective at delivering major plot surprises. Yes. For example, you know, you'll have a you'll have a photo, and there'll be clearly, you know, some kind of shady dealings happening in the background with the faces obscured. You do you do your little enhance, and you enhance, and you enhance, and then say, like, "Oh, that's my boss." Yeah,
0: <laughs> Lieutenant Guza. Yes, it's him. Yeah,
1: absolutely. There are multiple moments like that of just shock based on. You know what you find in the Esper, and yeah. they and they they do it so well that you can't just by looking at the photo without doing the enhancing, you can't figure it out. Like it, I think it's really good. Like they they build that technology into the pacing of the game and the pacing of the storytelling, in, I think a really smart way.
0: Yeah, pixels suddenly resolving into an image of someone that you recognize is like a very powerful powerful impact. It is, you know, there were many times when I was trying to click on the thing that I was, in fact, <laughs> in, like supposed to be trying to click on, yeah. but not it just isn't triggering, which like that is also kind of a classic like point and click adventure game experience, I think, is like not being able to walk exactly where you want to walk or or interact with exactly the thing you're trying to grab. Um, but overall, I think this is just so cool. I also love that you get to do the Void test like mm-hmm. a bunch of times and i also love that it did not teach me how to do the void comp test it's like did you watch the movie do you have an intuition fit i mean maybe it's you, in the you manual read the manual no <laughs> <laughs> what do we say about the manual so yeah i i loved getting to do that on characters and uh and sort of figuring out how to make that an effective tool of of investigation um yeah, nothing makes you feel more like a Blade Runner than than like void comping someone.
1: <laughs> and, you know, I think I should point out that you can fail it. You can hook somebody up to the test, and you could get an inconclusive result if mm-hmm. you, you know, if you don't run it properly. So it's it's again not just this, uh, you know, a plot contrivance. It actually there are stakes whenever you choose to to run the test on somebody.
0: Yeah, and again, figuring out how to do that matters, right? Because of the mm-hmm. randomization in. Like you genuinely there's literally no way to know whether some characters are replicants or not before you void comp them. Like you can have your intuition or your guess, but you know.
1: Yeah. And so um before we actually dig into the you know, the the plot and, and some of the point by point of the narrative, I just have one one other question for you. If whether you think the fan servicey elements helped or hurt this game. So as we mentioned, it is a story that's running very parallel to the story from the movie. And there are some overlaps and you know there are some overlaps of characters and scenes. Did you find that that got in the way of this telling, you know, its own completely unique story because there was so much, um, you know, so much connection to the movie right down to the motives of the replicants? Or did you find it helped?
0: Yeah, I have mixed feelings about this. And I think a lot of people's individual answers will come down to um, how much love they have for the film. I mean, it's something I thought about a lot around the sequence at um, J.F. Sebastian's, which is a place that you go that is very recognizable from the film, has a bunch of his little mechanical automaton sort of toy things walking around. Um, but also that also to me so easily could have not been in this game and, um, and so it's always, for me, walking this line of like, do I mind? Is it getting in the way? Or am I just like, hey, it's cool to be here, and then we're moving on pretty quickly. I do think that one of the places where this game suffers a little bit is it does replicate some of the, you know, the the goal of the replicants in this game are very, very close to the goal of, of the replicant faction in, in the film. Um, but I think it does that, unfortunately, without giving us quite the same, you know as compelling or powerful or memorable characters in the individual mm-hmm. replicants like you don't for me have standout characters um, like Roy or even Pris and you have a character you have characters that are reminiscent in a, in a pretty pretty tight, way of some of that cast despite not being them you know we have an exotic dancer who's who's in the mix who has like sort of an animal uh routine connection um we have sort of a younger girl with like quirky hair you know um there's there's some alignments uh but it doesn't quite produce as as strong of a characterization for any one of them so you know, I, I sort of mind less in situations where it's like, yeah, we didn't need to go to J.F. Sebastian's, but I was in and out of there in, in, you know, 15 minutes and it was cool to interact with his stuff versus like this this game looks, it's not a positive reflection on this game to compare it to uh, what's established in, in the film lore with the characters. Yeah, I
1: think, I think I generally agree, especially the point about the, you know, the replicants, of course, they're not going to have the charisma of Rutger Hauer. And you can't help but compare them because, you know, their motives are so similar and you are, you know, encountering other characters from the movie. You're encountering Leon, for example, right. who, again, maybe, you know, not the most charismatic, of, a, but still a memorable character in a way that some of these some of these characters aren't.
0: The eyes guy.
1: Yeah. Chu was in this right, in this Chu, game, which yeah. was awesome. Yeah. I was very happy to see him. We We get to see much more of, you know his little milieu within the city um so maybe that's a good place for us to you know take a bit of a break when we come back we can go over you know more of the moment to moment action and narrative of this game and uh i'm very curious to learn how you played your ray mccoy whether you were a ruthless blade runner or had some sympathies to the replicants useful is for us to go through our playthroughs of Blade Runner, not necessarily hitting you know each plot point beat by beat, but going through you know the general overview of the plot and trying to find points of divergence in our playthroughs because I think we had pretty different experiences. I think so. I think our I think our, our, our McCoys were quite distinct. <laughs> so as Michelle mentioned earlier, the game opens with Ray McCoy arriving in his spinner at Runsitters, which is a new location in the game. It is a Basically, a pet store, and as we learn, you know, this guy has been selling what he alleges are real, non synthetic animals. So, and very expensive at that. Uh, and there has been a a slaughter at the store, and you have arrived to investigate.
0: So basically, the way the rest of Act One unfolds is you're you're interviewing and exploring around uh, Run Sitters. You're going to collect some evidence there. You're going to figure out that something is going on with Runciter's assistant, Lucy, who will become one of the potential replicants that you're investigating. Um, you get some evidence there that you will explore at the police station, get to do your your first esper, looking at photos from the scene. Um, you find some clues that lead you to Chinatown uh, and specifically around this little like noodle stand thing. Um, and actually, this is where I think... We had one of our first major divergences. And this ended up leading to what ended up being a formative moment for me in how I understood who my McCoy was and like what we're doing in this game.
1: Yes, you end up in in Chinatown and you know you found clues that lead you to this noodle stand called Howie Lee's. And as you're talking around, you realize that they have a new cook there named Zubin. And so you decide to go into the back to. To um, interrogate this new cook. And as you do over the course of the discussion, you start to pick up pretty quickly on the fact that he is a replicant and is probably involved. You know, as soon as he catches on to you, he, you know, tosses his pot of soup at you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Which, if you have quick reflexes, you can jump out of the way and continue the chase. I did not. you did Okay, so you got hit by the soup? Oh yeah. Okay, in which case, you know, I think you can you can continue the chase, but then it's it's too late. So do you want to explain what what you did and then I'll explain what I did?
0: Totally. So, um I didn't see this coming, and so I got souped. You sort of slip and fall. You have like a <laughs> whoa kind of moment, which is very funny tonally. Um and so the the Zubin runs out the back door of this restaurant into this little alley thing. You chase him out there, but by the time I even got into the alley, he was already gone, and so I was still trying to pursue him sort of up and around this corner, but he's already so far ahead of me. Um, but what what did happen at one point, and like i I feel like I should pause here and say uh, the art is really beautiful in this game, but it is nineteen ninety seven so things are a little bit pixelated, and there are moments I will say when I felt some uncertainty or it would take me a second to to be sure who I was looking at so. I turn a corner in this alley and I see somebody, hunt like a person hunched over where I can't see their face. And so...
1: It does not look anything like this large cook in like a chef's, you know, like a a chef's apron. (laughs) Just to point out, looks nothing like the man she is chasing.
0: Sure. But like, (laughs) again, um, you know, nothing's overly clear in this game. And so I mccoy had his gun out and i shot this guy in the ass (laughs) and he went down and then mccoy walks over to him and realizes this guy is just a vagrant who happened to be beside this dumpster in the alley so uh mccoy was like shit um, but you know the the Zubin's still out there, so I, I continue further going, trying to find Zubin. I can't find him. I backtrack a little bit back to where um, this this uh, homeless guy that I have now killed is, and he's beside this dumpster. And I notice that the dumpster is highlighted, like you know, in point and clicks when it, the cursor changes if there's something that you can interact with. So there's there's an interactable on the dumpster, and so I click on that. Thinking, like every other place in this game where I've clicked, that McCoy will just like look and see if there's something relevant in there. Instead, McCoy lifts this guy's body up and chucks him into the dumpster and basically says like, well, hopefully the trash will come soon (laughs) and no one will ever find out. So I, at this moment, I had to sort of make a mental adjustment that like, okay, this is not a game where I'm like role-playing as like what do I want to do in this situation I'm like taking McCoy as a character and in this moment I had I felt like I had no choice but from there on to interpret him as a little bit hardened and and just a little bit um indifferent and and uh you know the kind of guy who would accidentally shoot, a homeless person, dump their body into a dumpster and just decide to never tell anyone about that. (laughs) Um, And so that really did, that shaped some of how I interacted with the rest of this game.
1: So did you play the rest of this game as like a stone cold Blade Runner? Yes. Who would, you know, your duty is to figure out who's a replicant and then retire them?
0: Correct. Um, And I also played McCoy as someone who, you know, was very willing to take out his gun in self defense or in lots of like i i played him you know partially because i so a, a thing that i think it's important to know about this game also um that i don't think we've said explicitly is you know when we say there's player choice in how you deal with situations in this game it's not like a prompt comes up that is like do you want to let zuben go or do you want to shoot him
1: Oh, yeah. Wait, okay. so can I... Let me just say what happened with sure, Zubin, sure. because I think it helps illustrate this point um, exactly. So I remembered this pot thing. So I knew to, you know, click to the right so you dodge the pot. And so I got to chase Zubin. You do get into that alley, and so I'd see that vagrant as well, but you just keep going. And, you know, if you're, if you're on his tail pretty quickly, you end up down this little hallway, and then Zubin kind of appears behind you, coming at you menacingly. And your gun is out. And so you can... Um, shoot Zubin then and there and effectively retire a replicant. Zubin Zubin is one of two characters I think that's always a replicant. Or you can manually put your gun away, in which case you spare him. And, you know, to your point, the game doesn't tell you, you know, there's no prompt, like, do you want to put your gun away? It's like, do you click to shoot, which is, you know, what the game seems to be suggesting you do? Or do you as the player kind of pause and even, you know, think of the fact that you can put your gun away and then do that. And, you know, that's your choice.
0: Right. And I like this a lot because I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that happened with me is I didn't know that that is how the expression of like, I didn't, I didn't know that I was playing a game that would contemplate an action like that, that would respond to me putting a gun away in theory. Um, when someone is advancing on me menacingly and interpret that as within the game, like about, like the game knows how to respond to that. You're not just going to enter a fail state at that point. And in my defense, there are points when you can enter a fail state by putting your gun away at the mm-hmm. wrong moment. But um, I think I I also partially was so captured by my own expectations and conventions of what sorts of things are possible in video games, particularly ones that look like this or have these themes that I I think I just would have assu- – I, I didn't even get that screen, right, because I never caught up with Zubin. But in that situation, for example, like honestly, I probably would have shot him. And certainly with the way that characterization went on, my McCoy definitely would have. Mm-hmm. Like if he was being advanced on, he would, he would shoot somebody, period.
1: Yeah, but – But, you know, going back to just like making that decision, it really does feel, you know, like you're living in a world that just responds to whatever you do. And I love the fact that there are moments in this game where I actually don't know if I could do differently.
0: Mm.
1: Whereas, you know, something like a Mass Effect, you know literally all the choices you're going to make because it puts a dialogue box on the screen. That's different colors. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, time to make a good guy or bad guy choice now.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think the thing that, I really like about this approach in the logic of the world is I feel like the way that I got swept away by sort of the genre convention or video game convention kind of thematically resonates for me as the way that um, like McCoy's blade runner training would have also like prompted him and, and uh, primed him to have specific reactions to like a guy who he thinks is a replicant advancing on him. And so I, I sort of, like feeling the pull of that um, as a player Mm -hmm. and as a character, even though I think in some ways I probably ended up having a slightly less interesting run of it than you did as a result of that. But like, I deserved that. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah. And I mean, it
1: goes it goes either way. So right. In my case, I did decide to play as a replicant sympathizer pretty much throughout. But then, you know, other characters relations to me change. So when I got back to so after you after you go through the Zubin scenario, you end up going back to your apartment and in my case, Gaff, who's not Edward James Almost, but is pretty good impersonator. <laughs> yeah. Is is there and he gives me shit for sparing Zubin. Hmm. You know, he runs me down and and you know, you're you have a sexy coworker named Crystal. Crystal Steele.
0: Kind of... <laughs> Say her full name Crystal <laughs> Steel. Who is
1: a who is a hardened blade runner? She's who a has hard,
0: built... bad bitch blade runner. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Who has no sympathies. And so your relationship with her changes immediately. And, you know, in, in initially, you know, you're you're still friendly. But after you spare Zubin, she's a little bit getting a little bit suspicious, like wondering if you're up to this task. But yeah, you know, Gaff kind of gives you some words um, and tells you, you know, you really need to be on alert for these replicants. There's uh, a bunch of these replicants who, you know, hijacked a bus on an off-space colony. They're next to sixes. They're here now. They're in the city. You need to you need to take them out. Like get your shit together. Um, Yeah. Um, But then when I go into my apartment, um, I have a message on my answering machine that's from Lucy, Runciter's assistant, who, yeah, who thanks me for saying, you know, I know what you did. Thank you for sparing my friend.
0: Oh, see, I don't get. Okay, hang on, because this is another huge difference. So for me, because Zubin escapes, right, when I go back to my apartment, Zubin attacks me on the roof and it's like five minutes later. (laughs) Um, And so he comes at me running at me from the side I put him down with like eight bullets. It takes so much. Um, And honestly, so this is the the way the roof scene is set up. It's about as far back as the camera will ever be pulled in any shot in this entire game. Like you are very small. I, again, will be honest. I wasn't 100% sure that it was Zubin, but Mm. a guy was running at me clearly trying to mess my shit up. And I was like, McCoy shoots him. McCoy absolutely shoots this guy. And so I put down Zubin at that point. And then Gaff shows up for me, but he just is like, good job, rookie. Like not in those words, but he just sort of gives me the the pat on the back. And at this point, I as a player was feeling very unsure of what I was doing, but I was like, okay. Um, went inside. I did not get a message from Lucy. Um, I just had a message uh, from crystal steel actually i think telling me that uh an attack had happened at the tyrell building and to come in tomorrow um so that was the end of that was the end of mine so i still ended up killing zubin in the end but only because he he could have just left he came he like hunted me down (laughs) Mm -hmm. so this again was like a form a character forming moment for me with mccoy where i was like he's going to defend himself. And and that ends up actually kind of coming up a bunch of times throughout my playthrough. So act two begins with you investigating the a killing that's happened at the Tyrell building of one of their scientists named Eisenduller. And you're again, finding evidence that's going to lead you to a couple of places, some of which are actually familiar from the, the movie, including Animoid Row, where uh, Deckard goes to uh, explore investigate the snake scale he finds um DNA row which is where you meet uh Chu the eyeball guy as well as some others and ending up at at JF Sebastian. So this is really you pulling together a bunch of different narrative uh threads and and really doing some hard police work.
1: Yeah, this is you know this is the act that I think really introduces you to the broader world it it's where you start revisiting a lot of these really familiar locations and then seeing how they connect to all these new locations. Um but again, one thing it it kind of annoys me, but I kind of really like is that th- it doesn't even make sure you see the fan service. For example, during this act, you can get a meeting with Tyrell and see and meet Rachel, who is Sean Young. The actress is also playing Rachel. And you can voicomf her, you know, a real what would be a real moment of fan service. I think I, I missed it. I definitely did it in the past. It's on the back of the box. So I know it happens. I missed this. And I think what happens is that you have to go to Guza to set up an appointment. Um, But because he's kind of on his own schedule, he's not always in his
0: office. And I just forgot to keep checking back. Did you get this meeting? Absolutely not. No, sir, I did not. I would have had no idea that this was even in the game if you hadn't told me.
1: Yeah, so so again, right, there's so much that you can miss or, or, you know, see in certain playthroughs and not in others that, you know, lends itself to this this living, breathing world and, you know, shows that, you know, the developers aren't worried about the fact that, yeah, some players are going to miss this moment of fan service that's literally on the back of the box. Like they're confident <laughs> enough in their game. You paid
0: for the actress. To,
1: <laughs> to allow that to happen. But but yeah, it's, it, I really enjoy this act because, you know exactly going to dna row for example and you know seeing chew the eye guy but then seeing that you know there's not just an eye guy there there are a bunch of other people who are working on you know synthetic body parts for replicants and they're all in this one you know one area of the city it's really it just you know fleshes out fleshes out the world in in really meaningful ways to me this is where we learn about you know that there are these uh these people called the twins we learn later are these conjoined twins that have been working on the dna that um might have some, you know, clues about how to extend replicants' lifespan um, that are their target rates. Right? So we learned that, that they exist. The one thing that I found that happens in this in this act that really stood out for me, so um, as you gather information, you know, and, it, and it's kept in your Kaya, in your little Rolodex, you can bring it back to the police station and, um, you know, you can connect to the police database. So you can download clues that, you know, Crystal or Gaff maybe have uploaded, but you also, you also upload your own clues. And as I learned, I forgot this was a thing. Once you upload your clues, basically your, you know, your colleagues at the LAPD have access to that knowledge now. And so this becomes meaningful because it's during this act that you find out you, you, you meet this arms dealer named Izo. And through kind of a, an esper, right, examining this photo that that you find, you find out that Guza is up to some sh- some shady shit. And so I had this information and not really thinking about it. I just wanted to see what other, other people have put, you know, uploaded to the database. So I go and I just upload my stuff to the database. And then I go and I'm chatting with Guza later. And he mentions oh, uh, yeah, don't worry, I'll, I'll check that information you uploaded to the database later.
0: Ah. Uh... Like,
1: oh, shit. he <laughs> He's going to download my capture that I know that he is into some shady shit. And that just terrified me. And that didn't have to happen. Um, You can actually meet this other character on uh, Animoid Row who will kind of hack into your Kaya so that you can select what you upload so you don't have to upload everything. I missed that. I missed it, too. And... And so now it's like, shit, Guza is going to know that I'm on to him. And it didn't have to be that way. And that's such like an exciting little plot moment That's totally my fault that that happened. And I could have avoided it and I didn't. And, and again, you know, it just, I think, adds to this sense that this is a world that is really living and breathing. And you need to be a smart detective if you want to, you know, succeed in this world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's also the kind of thing where I feel like in most other games, it wouldn't have had that impact, right? Like... It's it's the kind of thing that you feel like. Uh, so much of this game is is me thinking, oh, the game wouldn't be smart enough. Like, oh, that's a plot flaw. The game won't respond to that, mm-hmm. but it actually does. Um, so yeah, I I really like the sequence too. I also missed uh, <laughs> the ability to control what I upload and was just like, yeah, yeah. This, despite I I don't think I actually found and identified Guza in that photo, but. Oh. I pieced it together from other evidence, um, including the if you because I was playing around with the the gun range, the shooting range part that's in the police station.
1: Oh, which I don't, I didn't even visit. There's
0: no reason to. It, I mean, well, I mean the reason to is if you're too stupid to find the photo of Guza, is a backup <laughs> plan. But you can find like talking to the guy there. He talks about some weird stuff with shipments. You can get a manifest from him with. The pricing of all these different guns that are are um, police issue, like you get a sense that there's some stuff going on with the cops and arms going missing. And so when you get into you know Ezo's underlayer thing and you find police issue guns, I'm like, okay, got it. Um, so yeah, my my playthrough with with Ezo also was was interesting because as as he starts to realize that you're you're on to him or you're investigating him he blinds you with a with a camera like a polaroid camera and then runs mm. off into this little lair thing you have to chase him into and so he also initially got away and then about 30 seconds after that when i return to street level he comes running at me from off screen with a sword swinging a sword at me and so I, as McCoy, tried to shoot him, but before I succeeded, Crystal appears actually and picks him off, shoots him over my shoulder, like from behind me. And so he goes down and she arrests him and takes him in for being involved with a, a bombing that happened elsewhere. And so, again, it's this its this moment where I was like, McCoy, okay, McCoy is constantly under attack. He is willing to defend himself. Like, it, it just... It, it really heightens this sense of like, who knows what is going to happen in in this world um, in a super cool way. I do have to complain about two things from this section very quickly. Okay. One is that at JF Sebastian's, the one thing that you really have to do is plug in a printer. I spent so long walking around this stupid apartment loop looking for what I had to do And the answer is just plug in this printer and get this like one tiny piece of evidence. The other thing is...
1: Oh, right. That's where you learn, actually, this is actually pretty significant for the plot is, yeah, your clues lead you to Sebastian's apartment, the Bradbury building... This is where you learn that there's been DNA research on the incept dates that has that has been happening. That um, maybe you know these these twins we haven't met yet are actually getting closer to, you know, solving this mystery of how to extend the replicant's lifespan. Yeah.
0: That yeah, that the, the lifespan issue is live in this game, whereas it's very much sort of treated as not in in um, in the film. So the other big thing, this game does not have autosave. Um and one of the nope. things that you have to do in this chapter is a, you find a guy named Miraji, who uh, is on DNA row and uh, he is handcuffed to a thing where a bomb is about to go off and you have to shoot the handcuffs off him and then quickly get out of there, like run away fast enough to get clear of the bomb. Uh, I did die and lose almost two hours worth oh, of no. play in this game the first time. Oh, no. And then was so mad and just turned it off and, um, but I, I probably got us blown up six or seven times before I successfully like shot his figured out how to get him free and then get clear mm-hmm. of this thing. Shoutouts to autosave. it. uh great,
1: great innovation. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this this uh, this act ends when you're investigating Sebastian's the Bradbury building and you go into this other room and then the uh, you get to the roof and the replicants who you're pursuing, the two who are on the video camera, who, you know, Blew up Eisendruler in the Tyrell building. They attack you and tie you to a chair, and then you wake up, and Lucy is Lucy is there with you in this room, and she refers to Clovis, one of these replicants, as father. Yeah. And so you begin Act Three, tied to this chair, and you know you you get yourself out. It's a it's a it's a minor moment of puzzling. This game doesn't really have you know conventional adventure game puzzles. Uh, it's mostly you know collecting clues following leads and doing detective work but from time to time there is something that is more akin to a you know a a, a simple point and click puzzle in this case you just have to move your chair over to the radiator to burn through the ropes Um, and then so you know you scour this this location and this is where you find a photo that once you run it through the esper um, you realize it's a photo of this moon bus crash that um, Gaff told, or at least Gaff told me about in my playthrough, you know, where th- these replicants hi- bu- uh, hijacked this um, this bus on their off-world colony and drove it. And so it's it's ostensibly a photo taken from this crash, and when you da for it, da, 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 <laughs> you're in the picture. What? Your character is in the picture. So there's, there, you know, there have been little teases here and there, but this is the first time that it's really right in your face, asking you to reflect on the fact that maybe, you know, maybe your memories, your characters' memories have, are not, you know, natural memories. Maybe they're implants, and maybe you're actually a replicant as well.
0: Yeah. So from here, you have a a couple of new places you can go that have opened up, um, including back to the police station to look at more evidence. And uh, two new areas, Hysteria Hall, which is hilariously, uh, like, a uh, used car dealership and an arcade and a uh, nightclub bro, which has a couple of nightclubs. So in, in
1: there's a command and conquer cameo at the arcade. I don't know if you noticed that is one of the, you you meet Lucy there and she's standing by a command and conquer. Okay. Why there's command and conquer in the arcade. I don't know, but it's a Westwood game. Listen,
0: it's fine. Um, So yeah, so you've, At this point, you're trying to track down this handful of of people that you don't know yet. You suspect they might be replicants and they're connected to all this this, that's been going on. So I found Lucy first at Hysteria Hall, had a conversation with her. And as soon as I asked her if I could void comp her, she took off into the back room of the arcade, which is this big like mirror maze thing that she's running through. And at this point, like I think... this is this is I think the limits of like McCoy's sympathy for me. I, he and I didn't try that hard to get her. You know, I think this is a this is a point where he sort of ran through the maze, like took a couple shots at her as she was trying to get away. But she she escapes. Lucy for me mm-hmm. leaves and is gone. I never see Lucy again for the rest of this run. Um, but I, oh wow, yes. But I do, wow. I do. From this, have to conclude she was a replicant, which makes sense because of the way she is relating to um, Clovis, who we've mentioned, and his close partner uh, Sadiq, who's the other of the two men that we've been referring to, who um, seem to have done a lot of the hands-on violence that's happened so far. So,
1: so in my playthrough, I, I'm curious how this played out for you. So, I assume you went to you know the, there's a strip club and you're trying to investigate. Um, you know, there's, so there is a car at the scene of the crime at, at the scene of the, um, the animal murders. And you find out through a series of leads who the car, who the car was rented to or who was registered to. And you learn it's this woman named Dictora who works at the strip club. And so in my playthrough, I get there and, you know, through a series of puzzling, eventually make it to her dressing room and I'm talking with her and I VK her and find out that she's a replicant.
0: For me, she was, is that what happened to? she you was human for me.
1: Oh, okay. So in mine, then after I find out she's a replicant, she calls the cops on me and has me arrested.
0: Whoa. For for what?
1: Uh, Just for, you know, for harassment. And then what happens is that um, the cops come and arrest me. They knock me out and I kind of wake up in this weird underground place and they're accusing me of being a replicant. I say there's got to be some misunderstanding. You should call Lieutenant Guza at the LAPD. And they're like, there is no Lieutenant Guza. Did did this happen? Okay, to you? so it
0: did, but it happened to me in the pursuit of Gordo. So for me, oh. I got into Dektora's dressing room. I talked to her a bit. I voiconf her. She turns out to be human, but she still goes running, kind of screaming out of the room. Like she's like not happy that I'm there. So that's fine. I let her go. I go on. I'm looking for Gordo now, who's one of the other guys that that is on this list. Um, and he's performing stand-up comedy at the other main club that's in this area. And when I go in there, Gordo's on stage, and he's starting up his set, and he calls me out. He says, we have a very special guest here tonight, uh, Ray McCoy. And and um, he, at that point, calls for me to be arrested. Likewise, these cops, who we'll later figure out are, are fake cops... Run in, arrest me, pull me out of there over my objections, and then I have the same scene where I'm like,
1: "Oh, interesting. Okay, so for me, Gordo just ran away.
0: Ah, okay. Was Gordo? Okay,
1: so we both end up at the same at the same end point. I never got to VK okay. him, so I don't. He appeared at the end for me, um, but I don't know if he's a replicant or just a
0: sympathizer. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, because we because in the so when you wake up, um the the two. Uh, cops are like gonna start torturing you like it's very there's some serious violence about mm-hmm. to come. And then for me, Crystal Steele arrived and like busted yes, me out like she an saves me Okay, too. yeah. So then after that, when we go back to bust Gordo into that club, um, he runs out, he takes a hostage in the in the street and um uh Crystal and I both had our guns drawn in, but I took the shot, even though he had the hostage in front of him. I, I clicked him, and I shot him, and he goes down. Um,
1: oh, interesting. Okay, so yeah, in mine, we went back to find Dectora, and I found her, and I just let her run away. Crystal gave me some shit. <laughs> um, but then we realized that there's a warrant out for yes. my, like our arrest, because yeah. um, we're... And we're being blamed for killing Ezo. Wait,
0: we at least in mine. You I, and you and you and
1: I thought me it I thought us, both of us, but I don't know if you were. Uh, yeah, I no, was. I was just Okay, not you okay. and Crystal though. Yeah. Just
0: just re- <laughs> no. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. McCoy was being blamed for killing Ezo. So so yeah, this and then you know that leads into, so that's the end of Act three. And then that leads into act four where you're on the land. Yeah. There's just weird stuff happening. Uh, You don't know now, like, are you being, you know, you're being gaslighted or maybe you're not being gaslighted. It just, I love this. It just, you know, changed the whole feel of the game at this point for me.
0: Yeah, you know what also added a really, uh, I liked this thematic extra element in my playthrough is, so you're being, the APB comes through for you because they're saying that you killed Izo, right? So two things. One i tried to kill izo my i was not (laughs) i was not the one who technically shot him that was crystal but i know and my mccoy knows that like i did try i just didn't get there in time and b i killed that vagrant um that i never got busted for but so for Mm. me there also ends up being this extra layer where like the the thing that i'm being accused of i didn't happen to do but i also like player me's feelings about mccoy are also tied up on this like i'm already so implicated in so many things here that like i have this on top of my like existential like what am i am i a replicant am i not grayness Mm -hmm. i think um like my McCoy also is existing in this like twilight space of like mm, mm-hmm. of of guilt and well he's g- guilty just not of the thing that you know I'm being set up for so right. um I just like this there's just like layers and layers on this for yeah. me
1: no yeah at this point my McCoy is only guilty for not being good at his job
0: <laughs> on
1: purpose uh and and yeah and, and on purpose but yeah this whole I don't know th- some games do this where they just completely reconfigure your relationship to to the world, you know, in, in one of the final acts of this, I find this really effective. Like I, I actually felt, you know, kind of scared to walk around and then you go to your apartment to check in and there's some other guy in your apartment saying, you know, there's never been a McCoy here. Yeah. Your dog is gone. Yeah. It's just it's incredibly uncanny and unsettling. You're, this you're primarily
0: navigating through a sewer system that. You know, you can see bits of it earlier in the game, Mm -hmm. but suddenly you have to also relearn, like you can't just take your car anywhere, anywhere that you want to access to do anything in this game now. You have to figure out how to get there through this sewer system.
1: Yeah, you have to quite literally go underground. And in this act, you're piecing together both what happened with the replicants and also what's going on with you. Um, And you realize that um, basically... Guza is corrupt. He's been running some arms deals um, in cahoots with some replicants, and he's basically set you up.
0: Yeah. Uh, And part of how you figure that out and get the evidence for it is um, you find the twins. Um, You meet the twins in the sewers uh, who have access to some of this evidence, but in order to give it to you, they need you to steal evidence or um, uh, a piece of information for them. From uh, the lab in Tyrell Corp, where Eisendueller, who you investigated earlier, had been working, so you have to sneak into Tyrell, um, and then also get out, uh, and then they will give you this sort of file of of data on what what Guza has been up to.
1: Yeah, and this is where um, there's a little bit of an adventure gamey style puzzle. It's not very clear what oh, you need boy. to do with this evidence. Yes,
0: that's correct. I wasted a lot of time running around just being like. Now what? Trying to go to the police station, the police station is locked, trying to go to my apartment. Like what do I, how do I, okay, I know what I need to do. I need to share this evidence with somebody. Um, How do I do that? And the answer is simply to borrow the twins' phone. It's again, one of those classic point and click puzzle game things where like the answer is almost too obvious for you to have figured it out. I actually thought uh, that you were going to bring up the rat board puzzle here. Oh,
1: I, I, I was that was next too because that's also part of this this chapter.
0: Uh, do you want to tell the people um, about the rat board puzzle?
1: It, yeah, I just in my notes like, is this supposed to be a puzzle? <laughs> I don't even know. But it's like as you're navigating the sewers, you end up so there's kind of this makeshift bridge that's basically just a two by four across you know toxic sludge in the sewers, and you need to walk across it. But there's a rat on the other side,
0: like a big and- mutant gnarly sci-fi rat.
1: Yeah, big, big, big boy rat, who's apparently heavy enough that if you both end up in the middle, uh, the weight of you plus the rat is enough to break the board and send you both into the toxic waste. And so what you have to do is you have to lure the rat closer onto like your side of the board and shoot him fast enough so he dies without attacking you. And then, you know, his weight is holding the board so you can walk across. This is easier said than done. <clears throat>
0: I, in my notes, I just wrote stupid and underlined it twice. I,
1: I died here oh, yeah. so many times. Dude.
0: Yes, absolutely. Like I think more times even than the, uh, than I got us blown up earlier. It's just, <laughs> it's so finicky. And there were times when like, I thought I was shooting him fast enough. He wasn't on the board yet. And then I went down, like, it just, it was, why is this here? <laughs> what structural, how, how does this serve the larger themes of the game to shoot this giant rat?
1: Yeah. Atmosphere Um, of the sewers. But
0: I have to tell you one other thing that I know did not happen in your playthrough, talking about atmosphere of the sewers. Guess who I met in the sewers? Guess who was floating through the toxic sludge under my feet at one point? Oh, oh no. The body of the vagrant that I killed. Yes, that's (gasps) correct. He just, you come into one point, and he's just like floating down under, and McCoy just goes, huh, guess the trash didn't come, and- that's it. Yeah. And I was like, okay, you uh, you're a bad person.
1: <laughs> um, but yeah, we we're going to to Guza. You set up this meeting with Guza and just and you can resolve this in different ways. In mine, you know, you you talk to Guza and you know, he he gives you the file back to clear your name and he explains that he set you up and he says, you know, the reason he set you up is that the replicants came to him And showed him that moon bus picture and convinced him that you were replicant. And so it's still unclear whether that photo was doctored, whether it's real. Um, In my playthrough, I had enough aguza, so I ended up shooting
0: him. Oh, I think there's a couple different ways you can deal with him. Because he sort of says, come work with me, we'll bust the reps and we'll go back to headquarters and have a beer, you know? Um,
1: Oh, yeah, I didn't even get that option. I think at that point I was too much established as a sympathizer. Oh, okay.
0: Um, I was like... I was also not having any of Guza's shit. I, you know, in the game, it's ambiguous whether, you know, whether he sincerely believed this story from the replicants or if this even happened. Mm-hmm. In my head and in McCoy's head, I think he doesn't believe that and doesn't give a shit, even if it did. Like he's not, he's he's done working with Guza, right? So I left him. And the reason this is important is because at that point, some of the replicants, uh, you hear them, and you realize they're watching you, and they're about to shoot Guza. And well, first of all, I just ran out of there. That turned out to be a mistake because there's a there's another mini hidden object game in this scene, unannounced, unasked for, unwanted. Guza has brought you a briefcase of evidence.
1: Oh, yeah, all this stuff is going to clear your yes. name. The thing, the very thing you went to get. But he
0: then puts sits down behind a railing that conceals it about 90%. And so I didn't see that it was hmm. there. And so I just went running out and had nothing this, the first time I did this scene to clear my name with, cause the evidence is still back in there. So, you know, this is one of those cases where there's some point and click funniness happening here. But so I ended up just walking away and leaving them to shoot Guza. I didn't save him, but also didn't shoot him. Um, and just got got out of there. Um, and then in my playthrough, immediately after that, you're sort of like booting it through the sewer system because you've got this thing, to, this briefcase of stuff to clear mm-hmm. your name. Um, Clovis actually caught me and, and uh, grabs me like through a grate in the wall and then comes, walks around the wall to attack me. And this is a moment that I found frustrating in this game because I was like, what does McCoy do when he gets attacked by a replicant? It's... It's like bang, bang time. So I went to try to get my gun out to shoot him, which you should have time to do because he has to walk around a little thing and towards you. But you actually can't do that. The only way to progress in the game is to run away. So. Um,
1: that's not your style. That's
0: not not my McCoy. Couldn't be me. Um, so. Yeah, it took me I got killed by him a couple like it literally if he makes it around the the um the edge of the stone and into your line of sight, it won't let you shoot him. He will be on you like immediately oh. and he will kill you.
1: Yeah, I did not experience that because they were um the replicants including Clovis were just appreciative that I'd killed Guza and left me alone.
0: <laughs> well, that makes sense. Um but they were not having that with me. So you had to to book it out of there and then get sort of back to society. And um, I go and turn myself in at the police station.
1: Okay. Yeah. And so we clear our names. In mine, then, you return to your apartment to kind of end the day and end the act. And in mine, um, my dog has been killed uh, and has been killed by Crystal, who is on to me as a replicant sympathizer. And that's like her version of putting me on notes.
0: Oh, wow. This is very... Okay, this is very different. So, first of all, when I get released to go back to my uh, apartment, it makes it, it goes out of its way to make clear in the VO, they didn't even void comp me because it was so obvious that I was not, I was innocent once I showed them this file on Guza. So, the game really wants me to know. We still don't have an authoritative answer on what uh, McCoy is. Um, but I, Oh yeah, and and just to be clear, you never do. Yeah, no, you you don't. I mean, I I have a guess, but we can talk about that. And there, are,
1: yeah, there are different things that can happen. For example, when you're in Animoid Row, there's a scorpion. I don't know if you t- pet the scorpion. I didn't.
0: I know about this, but I didn't do it.
1: Yeah, like if you if you pet the scorpion a few times, it stings you, and the person at Animoid Row freaks out, saying, "Oh, you're gonna die," and you don't. Right. Um, which suggests that maybe you're a replicant, right. but there are other, but there are equally a number of things that could happen to you that might suggest that you're a human. So it's it's left ambiguous. Yeah.
0: Um, so I just get back to the apartment and, uh, Maggie, my dog is still just not there. Uh, and McCoy is not really oh, okay. sure what that's about. And then McCoy gets a call from Crystal saying, uh, good work. Glad you have you back, buddy. Let's go. We've, we've found the moon bus out on the Kipple, which is basically this rubble on the outskirts of town. Uh, what do you say? We go crack some skulls. And my McCoy says, I'll see you there in 10 minutes. And heads there." Okay. Out.
1: So. So, mine was different. So, I had a call from Lucy, who gives me two options. And she says, you know, Clovis' father wants to meet you at the moon bus. Um, but I'll be at the place where they sell the cars if you would prefer to come and see me. Oh. So, um, so yeah, this leads into Act 5, which is basically just your ending. Yeah. And in my case, I had two ending options. Uh, and I played them both. So, if you go to see Lucy... Um, it's it's a little creepy, um, because basically what happens is you meet Lucy back at the um, at the car dealership that you you know that you encounter you know as you're as you're investigating earlier, and you know after you do a series of puzzles, basically you get into a car and you drive away, just with Lucy. Oh. And you know I didn't I didn't in this case I didn't have a, I didn't hand over the DNA info to the replicants to and I didn't have enough to save us, so we just kind of go and there's some voiceover that. You know, we don't know how long we have left to live or if I even am on a timer. Uh, We know that Lucy's a replicant in this version. And uh, we'll just, you know, we'll just live our lives until we can't anymore. Um, And then it just cuts to Clovis, who has been killed by Gap, who leaves behind an origami. So that was one of my options. The other was to go to the site of the moon bus crash. Um, I run into Crystal there. And I have a shootout with her and have to kill Crystal. Oh, okay. And then I go to the moon bus and all of the replicants, including Lucy, are there in the moon bus. Um, I turn over the DNA data to Clovis and we just all take off together in the moon bus and I guess fly to an off-world colony. And then Gaff sees us and like drops an origami. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow.
1: And so that's kind of like the happy ending.
0: Okay. Mine is uh different than that. Um, okay. So... You agree that you are going to meet up with Crystal and go bust some ass. You go to the rubble. Um, There's been a bomb set up. That's a trap. If you catch it quickly enough, you can disarm it. Otherwise it blows her up. But I happen to get it in time. Um, She's sort of grateful after that. And then you end up by yourself having this kind of showdown with Sadiq in front of the moon bus. So... Oh, quick yes. question.
1: In yours, was Sadiq... Did you find out if he was a replicant or not? Uh,
0: so I never VK'd him, but, like, he is... I guess I don't know. I mean, he's he's here at this point.
1: <laughs> yeah, because in mine, I learned that he... In mine, he was human, but he was helping the replicants because he was married to a replicant who got retired. Oh. And so he's now, like, devoted his life to working with the replicants.
0: Wow. No, I never got that deep of a background on him um, because he attacks me. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> I'll I'll say a little more about how exactly that goes down in a minute. But um so I end up shooting Sadiq, um, and then going on into the moon bus where Clovis is holed up in there and he is dying. He is at the very end, you know, this is the Rucker Hauer, these are my last moments, um, sort of sort of thing. And uh at this point he's talking to you about what a waste of life it is, blah, blah, blah um and uh it's a little less elegant than tears in the rain um but it's fine uh and you either can you can retire him or i just stood to the side and listened to him go through his his little his speech thing that he does and then he just dies so i Mm -hmm. walked out of there to see crystal coming up behind me and she sort of pats me on the back and goes Good work, buddy. You ever think of working with a partner and they sort of walk off hand in hand into the sunset, going to be police buddies, like Blade Runner buddies, together for the rest of time? Wow, that I'm
1: I'm very glad, but also surprised that we had such different playthroughs because I, I was almost certain that you would play as a sympathizer just because you're usually like the goody two shoes. Hundred percent, yeah. You're never, you're never the, yeah, the hard ass in these games, but I'm, I'm glad that you, I'm glad you made that one mistake at the beginning that just, you know, determined the trajectory for <laughs> the rest of you, your game. Sometimes play. you have
0: to let a mistake shape how the rest of it goes. Like, I just became a guy who did this and, you know.
1: So that's, yeah, so that's basically Blade Runner. You know, and I think, I think along the way we kind of hit everything that, you know, really stood out to me as being really interesting mechanically, but do, do you have any final thoughts?
0: I do. So. Um, remind me, what's my official position on how I feel about animal death?
1: Yeah, it's you're not into it. <laughs> and I remembered I remembered how this game opened. Um
0: Did you remember how it can end? Series?
1: I forgot how okay. it ended. So
0: let me say something about this. I in a big way was expecting this game to wrestle in some way with what it means for animal life to also be organic or synthetic. I think if you look at bigger ideas about the way humanity relates to other forms of life, um, there's a lot to be said about the way that human beings relate to animals and also the way human beings relate to, you know, in, in ideas about androids or AI or or whatever. There's really, really interesting ground there. And, you know, right out the gate, we have um, our inciting incident is these replicants massacring this mix of undifferentiated uh, organic and synthetic animals, um, and you know we have right.
1: Though we learn, yeah, though we learn later that they might have all been synthetic. Like this is sure. this is kind of a plot, but that Runcer might have been, you know, scamming people. Right, but but, but, but you yeah, know also it's also
0: we have themes throughout where you know. Um, we're tracking the the pieces of this this dragonfly um, that that ends up connecting um, uh, Dectora, the exotic dancer, and and a bunch of other elements. Mm-hmm. And we have this very important weight around Maggie, who is McCoy's dog. And I really thought this game was setting up a, a a logic here that was interesting. That was about that was going to have something to say about animality, either organically or artificially, and how it relates into the broader themes of. Of Blade Runner. Um, And instead, what we get in my final encounter with Sadiq is uh, he's got my dog Maggie there with him. And he releases Maggie and Maggie starts running towards me. And I hear a beeping noise. And I realize Maggie has got a bomb strapped to her. And when she gets within petting distance of me, she explodes. So that's how this game ends up resolving this medit this like meditation on animalities in a way that is like at first I was I was like sl- upset and disturbed by the like what happened to my dog problem and then mm-hmm. in the end they blow her up she just explodes in a way that like with its abruptness and its brutality actually made me laugh and it, it just, it's, it's just such a anticlimactic way to to wrap up something where it's like oh I thought you were going somewhere with this like I thought why would and you know why would Sadiq be willing to like kill and and blow up this synthetic animal and he takes the approach of like why are you even upset she wasn't real like he tells you that your your dog which you thought was organic was synthetic
1: okay so Crystal does the same.
0: But it I'm makes sense for Crystal her. though, because Crystal believes yeah. that synthetic life mm-hmm. has a fundamentally different value. It doesn't make sense for Sadiq to believe that. I mean, maybe he's just doing that to like try to make you confront the cri- the contradiction in your own feelings about your dog. But like,
1: yeah, the resolution of that on the replicant side, yeah, that doesn't seem to be as consistent. Like it, yeah, it's kind of much more horrifying. Um, but it also makes more sense as a moment with the yeah. crystal.
0: Like it ended up not being emotional. It ended up being like because it just goes like, boom, and like your dog's just gone, like just blown apart. Mm. Um, and so that was like a weird turn for that that whole plot to to end up at.
1: Yeah, I gotta say, like the game as it does as it does well enough, but it struggles sometimes to keep thematic threads going, depending on your choices, because the you know the themes of the game change yep. or are at least articulated in different ways depending on how you play and it's it's almost like the game doesn't have all those thematic permutations um, at its disposal and yeah uh, yeah I think in that moment the way you describe it it's that seems really relevant yep.
0: um so I mean that's that's just that's just one one yeah. theme
1: but yeah anything else
0: yeah one other thing um so I've been thinking about this a bunch but based on the way that I played McCoy, I really think the element of Blade Runner that has aged the worst is the idea that a Blade Runner would actually have their career ended for killing a civilian. Like, that is probably not how it would work in this world realistically, (laughs) right? And this is, like, not to be too, like, on my shit or too, like, 2021 about this, but like, you know, would Blade Runners really in this world go around saying to each other, remember, if you retire a human, you're done? Or more realistically... Like, if they end up shooting a human, would there it just be kind of covered up and there'd be, like, a public...
1: Stick him in the dumpster, get him in the sewers.
0: Honestly, except, like, with institutional support. Like, no, in this, like, dystopic L.A., zero percent of me believes that, like, oh, you know, it's a very scrupulous... Like, we were... Any violence towards civilians is, like, so uh, not tolerated here. Like, your career is over if you... Even in kind of self-defense, which the game keeps mm-hmm. putting me in, retire one of them. So I don't know. That's just like, that's a part of this game that strikes me as so like naive now in hindsight, in a weird way.
1: <laughs> um, and yeah, and I mean, the reason they keep reminding you of that is because there is there are mechanical consequences if you're seen killing right. somebody or if you if you're uncertain and you think it's a rep and you kill them and it turns out they're not, you will get punished. But I think, yeah, I think that's interesting, right? How they're trying to signal this mechanic to try to give you some, you know, gameplay stakes, but then it ends up not necessarily fitting in within the the world they're creating, right? Or yeah, it makes you feel a little bit uncertain about the consistency of that world. Yeah,
0: it's present a little bit in the original film as well. You know, Rachel's really curious about whether Descartes has ever retired a human by mm-hmm. mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm sure there's I don't know. It just it's it's interesting. I I think the public is at a different point with how we think about those kinds of dynamics now than they would have been. A lot of them would have been when, when the original Blade Runner came out, and so this was just something that that really like stuck out tonally as as funny mm-hmm. to me. Um,
1: yeah, I, I'd very much like to see somebody try to do a sequel to this today. You know, there were there's attempts to do a remaster of this game and it was in the works but i think they lost some of the original files or you know they lost some of the original content and so it's i don't know it's it's kind of been put on pause but there you know there there is an attempt to try to resuscitate this and you know if it does well i mean even if it's not blade run or something more in this style of game you know open world detective adventure i would love to play something else in this style that is um equal like just just this this right amount of handhold oh but boy. that you know lets me make my own I'm gonna, makes me lo-
0: i'm gonna i'm go gonna ahead. point you back to this conversation in a couple of months that's juicy oh really yeah absolutely okay. i have i have something okay. planned for you that is going to be really nice oh. um i do have one more final thought that i wanted to say oh, which okay. is that you know as much as it was weird for me to have ended up being the one who played the like uh uh the hard blade Runner in, in this. Um, I, in my head,, uh, McCoy was a replicant. Um, you know, that's in okay. in my head, that's yeah. the Canon. Um, and it actually helps me feel the reality of this world to have a, a primary character in this world that had good reason to believe that they might be a replicant. And unlike Descartes and Rachel and so many other characters, chose to just sort of suppress that and carry a carry on their mm. regular life i think um you know it's much easier to make a good story about the character who like figures this out and changes everything mm-hmm. and you know deckart goes out into the desert with rachel as we find out later but i it it really ground
1: wait did you what version of the movie did you watch did you watch one where they're driving off into the sunset?
0: <laughs> no, you find out in in the the recent Blade Runner that Deckard's at. Oh, that's they, right, They'd they ran out. off. Okay. Um, but uh, but yeah, I it, it 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 feels really resonant and really real and grounded and believable to me that there's a bunch of people also in this world who got a whiff of this and just chose not to look at it and just shut that part of mm. themselves down because that that you know, feeling of, of something that fundamental and that challenging to your identity and that huge um, and just declining to examine it any further also feels very human to me. So I think that's it. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, whether you're a Blade Runner or a Replicant Sympathizer, please feel free to rate and review us on whatever platform you are listening on. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, they're all good. If you like more information about the show or about this episode, you can find that at neverwasagamer.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at Never Was a Gamer.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next time when we play a more recent licensed game. With all this talk about being these hard asses uh, <laughs> or fighting criminals, it's the perfect opportunity to play Batman Arkham Asylum. So we'll see you next time after Michelle has finished Arkham Asylum. Because, you know, never having your fill of games about broken men with daddy issues, (laughs) and this time with some sweet stealth sequences, is an essential part of being a gamer.